Now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 10 as we continue our study in this book. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go, take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we ask your Holy Spirit to guide us into understanding so that we might trumpet out the things that are in your word, the things that you have revealed to us. You have called us to roar these things as a lion roars. And so give us boldness and confidence. Give my tongue freedom of speech and liberty and inspire me with your Holy Spirit now to speak these things clearly, to articulate them, and then that we all might receive them and appreciate them and live by them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One archetypal figure that stands tall in our stories is the Old West Sheriff or the vigilante who embodies the law. He not only enforces the law, he defines the law. And so some bad guy might protest his methods and complain, you can't do that. It's against the law. And the sheriff will reply, what? Mister, I am the law. That's what he'll say. Well, in the early days of baseball, there was a umpire that embodied that attitude of an Old West sheriff. When the rules of baseball were still being codified, there was a great umpire named Bill Clem who provided leadership and authority and organization on the baseball diamond in the early days. And if a, a player would ask the umpire, they would ask, Bill, what was that? Was it a ball or a strike? He'd say, boy, it ain't nothing until I call it. <laughs> his answer, his call would define the reality. While other umpires merely reported what they saw, fair or foul, ball or strike, Bill Clem said, I define reality. It ain't nothing till I call it. And his call established the reality. In an exceedingly more relevant and glorious way, the Lord Jesus truly defines and establishes reality. It is Jesus who not simply describes reality, but defines it. Jesus doesn't simply describe truth or point us to truth or communicate truth. Jesus is truth. He doesn't simply 
tell us the word or preach the word. He is the word. Jesus is the word of God who spoke all creation into existence. And as Paul says in Colossians, he is before all things and in him all things consist. Everything is held together by the power of his word. So not only does he speak it into existence, he tends to it and he cares for it by his word. Psalm 33 says this, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So the reason we have a knowable, searchable, logical universe is because it was spoken into existence by a knowable, searchable, logical God. The the Word of God, capital W, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word opens his mouth and reality issues forth by his breath, by his voice. And then he does this fascinating thing in history where he then gives his Word to his servants, the prophets. And they don't only see his works and describe his works, but he gives them his Spirit so that by their inspired words, they are the heralds of new creation. Their, their words reveal realities. Their words are creative in the sense that, that they usher in new worlds of blessing. God, God speaks about things that don't exist, and then they exist. And his prophets speak about things that haven't happened yet, and then they happen. God's words become their words. They speak in the power and inspiration of the Spirit and their words become reality. And so the words of the prophets don't simply describe, they initiate. The, the prophets herald a new age. In Revelation chapter 10, we get the picture of Jesus standing on the land and the sea with an open book in one hand, the other hand raised to heaven, and he roars out the contents of the book in his hand. And then John his servant, the Apostle John, is commanded to take that book that's in his hand and consume it, to eat it, so that John can then roar out the contents of the book. Up to this point, John has been a seer. He's been an observer who's described the things he saw. But now John is being called to be a prophet to speak the things, to, to preach them so that they come to pass. By, by, by the preaching of the prophets, God affects change in the world. Now, every week when we're studying this book, I always do a very short recap in case somebody's popping in for the first time, uh, but also in hopes that by repetition, we work it into our hearts and minds what this book is about and what's being told here, uh, and, and for us to remember the context for the whole book. Quickly, <laughs> Revelation is a book written in the language of symbol, communicated by the angels to the Apostle John. It is a book revealing or uncovering Jesus and the events of history from heaven's perspective. Now, the events that are written about in the book of Revelation are things that are shortly to come to pass from John's perspective. Repeatedly, we read that the time is near, the time is near. These things are shortly to take place. So everything that's written here is relevant to the church in the first century. And the warnings and the judgments that are described are chiefly concerning the events between AD 30 and AD 70, with the final judgment of apostate Israel in AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so what 
What we do with the book of Revelation is we don't take the things and we're trying to match them up to what's in the news or, or what we think's in the future. We take the events of Revelation, we match them to history, and we're also looking back to the way that God uses these same symbols throughout all of Scripture. Well, John, the apostle, has been invited up into heaven to watch and witness the, the heavenly worship service that goes on around the throne of God, and he witnesses Jesus ascend, take up, a scroll, take up a book that he is worthy to open. Jesus is the only one worthy to open the scroll. Jesus breaks the seven seals on the scroll. And as he breaks them, what we have are preliminary warnings about the contents of the book. Then after the book is opened, seven angels trumpet out the contents of the book. And as they do, judgment falls on the land of Israel. And, and it takes us up to the final days right before the end of Jerusalem. Now, the seven trumpets, as we've studied so far, they're not laid out chronologically. The events of the first trumpet don't happen first with the events of the second trumpet happening second, and then comes the third. These are categories of things. These trumpet judgments are facets of things that happen between Pentecost and AD 70. And we've studied the first five trumpets, and now here we are in the middle of the events of the sixth trumpet. Last week, we just opened and started to look at the sixth trumpet. And there are three events that happen after the sixth trumpet is blown. And all of them, all three events that come out of the sixth trumpet have to do with the proclamation of the gospel and the effects of the proclamation of the gospel. There are three scenes in the sixth trumpet. There is what we saw last week, a great fire-breathing cavalry that's unleashed on the land. It gives us this perspective of the the, the success and the power of the church as it preaches the gospel and moves across the land. Then in the second scene, what we're going to look at today, Jesus thunders and roars, and he invites John to thunder and roar out the proclamation of the gospel. And then the third scene that we'll get to next week, there are two witnesses who breathe fire and preach in the great city, which is called Egypt and Sodom. It's the city of Jerusalem. All of the events of the, of the sixth trumpet then uh, have to do with the proclamation of the gospel. So we'll sur survey this middle scene today. Before I get into it, I want to say one more thing, that we are getting into the most difficult section of Revelation. And I really appreciate your patience. I almost wish that, that this was a more classroom kind of thing where I had a whiteboard and you know slides and handouts and, and we could stop. But if I did that in a sermon context, and if I, if I said everything that could be said, we'd do about two verses a week, and we'd still be here 20 years from now. And there are other things to talk about, and there are other things to get to as rich and as wonderful as this is, and it really is. So realize, you know and I know, I can't say everything that needs to be said. If you have questions, come to me and talk to me. My job here is to give you framework for your study, to inspire you to think about certain things in a certain way, and, and to inspire you to study further on your own. And that's, that's what I see as my, as my job, to give you some things to encourage and to exhort, and then inspire your, your further study. So let's, let's get back into chapter 10, the middle of the sixth trumpet. Chapter 10, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Okay, who is clothed with a cloud? Who has a rainbow around his head? Whose face shines like the sun? Whose legs and feet are pillars of fire? Who roars like a lion? I know that's the Sunday school question, and the Sunday school answer is, 
Jesus, right? That's, all, that's always the answer. When, it, when a Sunday school teacher says that, you know, who, who is like this? And Jesus, that's the answer. It doesn't seem like this is a common ordinary angel. He's called an angel, but throughout the Old Testament, we see the angel of the Lord, capital A, the angel of the Lord, who appears to Abraham and Jacob and Gideon and Moses and others. And many Bible scholars throughout history have called the angel of the Lord, capital A, a a pre-incarnate Christ. They've identified him as the second person of the Trinity who appeared in the old covenant before he came as a man. Remember the word angel always means messenger. There are specific kinds of heavenly creatures that, that are called angels that are also called seraphim and cherubim, but an angel is a messenger, both in the Hebrew and the Greek. The word that's translated angel just means messenger. And you also remember back when we studied the pastors of the churches of Asia were also called angels. They were the messengers of the seven churches. So Jesus is the messenger. He is the capital M, capital M messenger of Yahweh. He is the word of Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity. And I think we're, we're not on shaky ground by understanding this is Jesus. In fact, I think it's pretty important that we understand this is Jesus. Revelation started, if you remember back in chapter one, it started with a, a poem called a blazon, a poem that described the various features of Jesus, like the lovers in Song of Solomon speak about each other's features. And here's another blazon, another, another poem describing the features of this angel. He's a mighty angel. That's the first thing we find. He's a strong angel, like the one who wrestled Jacob all through the night. Like the, like the mighty angel of Yahweh who fights for Israel against her enemies and always wins. The, the mighty angel, the strong angel who fights on Israel's behalf always wins. He's clothed with a cloud. Psalm 104 says, the Lord makes the clouds his chariot and he walks on the wings of the wind. Jesus is often said to be coming with clouds, not, not, not the fluffy things in the sky, but the glory cloud, the great army of angels with trumpets and lightning. He's wearing as a cloak the entire host of heaven about him. That's the cloud that he's wearing with a rainbow on his head. We've already seen a rainbow around the head of the father on his throne. And this cloud that clothes Jesus has a rainbow emanating from it, just like it did the throne of the Father. This, this great army of angels has a, has a rainbow emanating out of this cloud, just like it did when Ezekiel saw the Son of Man uh, descending. Um, and we'll hear from Ezekiel in just a moment. But here with this rainbow, there's a little reminder of the covenant. There's a little reminder of God's mercies and the promises of God, even in the midst of, of, of judgment. His face was like the sun. In Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face shone like the sun, or shined, shined like the sun. Which is it? Shone? Shone? I'm completely questioning myself now. Davis, edit that later with the correct word. His face was bright. It was bright like the sun. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the angel's face, this mighty angel, his face is like the sun. Malachi calls, calls Messiah. Malachi calls the Messiah the son of righteousness, S-U-N, son of righteousness. In Zechariah's song, uh, the, the father of John the Baptist who sings, Zechariah says, Jesus is the sunrise, the day spring from on high. Uh, so, so the face of Jesus doesn't 
simply reflect light, it emits light. It illuminates all the dark places. It exposes wickedness and corruption and rot. And it brings the light of judgment and correction so that nobody ever gets away with anything ever. I want to, is everybody awake? Nobody ever gets away with anything ever. So don't despair if you think wicked people get away with things because nobody gets away with anything ever. Everyone stands before the judgment seat of Christ. His face shines like the sun and illuminates all the dark places. His feet are like pillars of fire. His, his legs are like streams of fire from heaven to earth. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Thinking back to the wilderness when uh, Yahweh led Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Well, we've already seen the cloud in this image and now we, now we get the pillar of fire. Exodus 13 says that by these pillars, God walked before them in the wilderness. And Exodus 33 and Numbers 12, he stood before them in this pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. So here the feet and legs of Jesus stand as pillars of fire. So we get this whole description from head to toe. We get a kind of a similar description of the mighty bridegroom of, of, of the Song of Solomon, where, where remember his legs were like the pillars of the temple. Add it all up, and there's, there's no doubt that this mighty, glorious angel coming down from heaven is the Lord Jesus. And we see a very similar image in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1. Let me quickly, I, I told my wife last night, I said, I feel like I've got to stop here and then preach the whole book of Ezekiel, and then stop and then preach the whole book of Daniel, and then we can come back to Revelation. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you a little bit of Ezekiel because it's so relevant and, and it's so important. Ezekiel is the prophet who in 597 BC watches as the remnant of Judah goes into Babylonian captivity. And then Ezekiel sees this vision of Yahweh's chariot captained by the cherubim going over into Babylon. So, so Yahweh is taking exile upon himself. Yahweh's presence leaves the temple and he goes over into Babylon so he can reside with his people in Babylon. God's presence is there among his people. And Ezekiel is his prophet and his priest. And Ezekiel sees this. And then uh, Ezekiel uh, writes this in Ezekiel 1. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. He's talking about the cherubim. A voice came from the firmament that was over their heads. Wherever they stood, they let down their wings. And the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I, I, I read that whole section because I want to lay that over on top of Revelation chapter 10 and show you that the same thing is happening here with John 
as happened with Ezekiel. The same mighty angel, the same son of man, uh, came and appeared to both Ezekiel and Daniel and John. And as, as he commissioned Ezekiel to prophesy, so now he is, is appearing to John and commissioning John to prophesy to the nations. Now, we're going to build on this, but why is any of this important? Let's take a breath. When you pick up a systematic theology textbook, or you read a confession or a catechism from the 16th or 17th century, you're going to be encountered with words and terms that describe the omnipotence of God, or the omnipresence of God, or the aseity of God, or the immutability of God, or the impassibility of God. And those definitions and those work, they have their place, and they can be helpful in certain contexts. But when you open the Bible to get a definition of God, what do you get? You get fire, and sun, and lion, and amber, and sapphire. You get the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. That's, that's what the Bible gives us to describe the presence of Jesus and, and God and the Spirit. So, so the confessions and the catechisms and the systematic theologies are helpful. I'm not saying they aren't helpful, but they aren't everything. And we must be conscious of the way and the fact that they don't speak the way the Bible speaks. When God speaks and reveals himself, this is how he does it, through poem and symbol and story and song. And these are the ways, these are the means by which he communicates to us and primarily reveals himself to us and wants us to meditate on, on him uh, primarily. So uh, catechisms and 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 confessions are, are wonderful, systematic theologies have their place, but if, if you have to choose between what you're going to study first and what you're going to major in and major on and think about, meditate on, on the scriptures and, and look at the way God reveals himself, and, and you'll find it very, very different from the formulas of, of the, the systematics and the theology. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So in this vision, we've established this is Jesus. He stands with his right foot on the sea, which is okay because Jesus can walk on the sea. He's got no problem putting his right foot on the sea. He's already shown he can walk on the sea. He can walk on the water. And his left foot on the land, the land always refers to the land of promise, the land of Israel. So if he's got his right foot on the water and his left foot on the land, that means he's facing south, if you think of the geography of the land of promise. He's facing south the same direction that the angels previously let loose the gospel cavalry on the land in, in the last scene. He's facing toward the city of Jerusalem, holding the book of the covenant. And when he cries with a loud voice, it sounds like a lion roaring so that, so that no one can understand what he says. It's so loud. It shakes everything. And, and it is so much that, that you can't take it in. It's overwhelming. Like 
the loud voice that the children of Israel heard at Mount Sinai. Do you remember when Moses was at the top of the mountain? At the bottom of the mountain, people witnessed lightning and thunder and fire and smoke at the top of the mountain. And there was a trumpet, the sound of a trumpet that got louder and louder and louder. And they saw the mountain smoking and it was so loud that they couldn't make anything out. Well, it was God speaking. It was God's voice that they heard, but they couldn't understand it, couldn't make it out. It was so loud and they backed up and they trembled and they ran away from the mountain. And they said to Moses, listen, buddy, you talk to God. I don't want to hear that anymore. I can't take it. Don't let God speak to us anymore. You listen to him and you tell us what he says because we can't hear it and we can't take it in. God roared out his covenant at Mount Sinai. He blasted it out like a trumpet. In John 12, another one of these times where this happens, Jesus prays in John 12, Father, glorify your name. And then the voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people who stood by didn't understand what was said. They heard it, and they said it had thundered. They, they thought it had thundered. And, and others said an angel has spoken, but it was so loud they couldn't hear it. I love Psalm 29. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. The voice of Yahweh divides the flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and he strips the forest bare and in his temple, everyone says glory. So he speaks and we echo glory. He speaks to his creation and he speaks recreation. And when God speaks, it rattles the earth. It rattles everything. God does not whisper to his creation. Jesus doesn't just let it slip out timidly, the the, the message of the gospel. The Holy Spirit doesn't mumble. When God speaks, he thunders. He roars. This is my beloved son. Hear him. It's not a whisper. It's It's a roar. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Even if you have no money, come, buy and eat. Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These are not whispers. These these are not mumbles. This is not just something that leaks out and slips out and you find about it, you know, through the grapevine. He trumpets it out. He calls men to repent and come to him. Because if he whispers, it's not going to break any chains. That's not going to shine the light. That's not going to deliver anyone if he whispers it. And so he roars it. Jesus stands on the land and on the sea in dominion over all of creation, the world of Jews and Gentiles. He stands over it all and he trumpets. He roars out the contents of this book. And there are seven thunders that echo. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Well, what did those thunders say? And why wasn't John supposed to write them down? It piques our curiosity. What exactly did they say? Well, first of all, John isn't going to write them down because he's going to say them himself as a prophet later on. John is about to be promoted from seer to prophet. Remember in the old days, Samuel was called a seer. 
he was, uh, things were revealed to him by God. And he wrote down what he saw. He wrote down, it was dictated by, uh, by God, uh, the things he were to write down. Moses did the same. And so far, John has been a seer, but now he's going to get promoted. He's going to get the word down inside of him, and he's going to prophesy. And the message of the seven thunders, I believe, are reported throughout the rest of this book because there are seven more great loud voice events in the book of Revelation, seven more mighty voice events. I'll just look at a couple of them. In chapter 11, verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. In chapter 12, verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Over in 18 chapter 2, there's another great loud voice event. He cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every clean and hated bird. And then over in chapter 21, verse three, I heard a great loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. There are seven of those, uh, seven more great loud voices that, that echo and thunder through, through the book of Revelation. Verse five, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets." To this point in Revelation, we've seen the beginning of the decreation of the old world of the old covenant. We've reversed the work of the days of creation so far with each of these trumpets. And all these trumpets so far have been warnings to the people of the land to repent. But they haven't repented. They haven't listened. They haven't, they haven't stopped their idolatry and their nationalism. Like Pharaoh, they've hardened their hearts. And now remember, the angel of the Lord appeared to his people uh, b before the Exodus. And now the same angel of the Lord appears to his people again. Though, And as he led them out of Egypt, now he's going to lead them out of a new Egypt. Israel has become like Egypt. They've, they're acting like Pharaoh. And so as the angel came to announce plagues on hard-hearted Israel and led them out. So now this angel of the Lord appears. There's a new Passover, a new Exodus. The elect have been sealed by the blood of Jesus and they're going to be delivered. And this deliverance is going to come through union with Christ. This, 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 this deliverance is going to happen through the church, through the new Israel of God, through the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. That's the mystery of God that's being talked about here. Uh, the same mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3. It's maybe over a year ago that we studied Ephesians. If you remember that um, the, big, the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians is that God has not only delivered and saved Israel, but all the nations, and has unified them together in the church, which is his bride and body. A mystery 
which is the word that's used here, the mystery of God. A mystery is not something that's locked away and hidden so that we can never make sense of it. Uh, it's not a secret that's only for those in the know. A mystery is something that once was hidden and couldn't be figured out on our own until God reveals it. And that is what is happening here. It's, it's, it also uh, calls us back to uh, Daniel, chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 12, where... Daniel was given some information by an angel standing over the waters with his hand lifted to heaven. And that mighty angel, that son of God says, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Uh, he swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Well, now is the time to open the book. And now is the time to thunder it out. And now is the time to preach it. The mystery has been uncovered. The mystery has been revealed. And the mystery is this plan of God to join all of the nations together in his church and then join the church as a bride to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to join the church to Christ. That's the message that Jesus pronounces here. No more delay. Now is the time when the old scaffolding of the old covenant is torn down to reveal the building, the house, the church. Let, let's finish the chapter. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and say, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again against many people, nations, tongues, and kings. I read just a little piece of Ezekiel earlier. As Ezekiel is commissioned to be a prophet to the nations by the angel of the Lord, uh, Ezekiel in chapter three, he gets a scroll to eat, which starts off tasting sweet, which ends up being bitter. Ezekiel was a prophet who stood at the end of an age. As Jerusalem was invaded, the temple was wrecked, Judah was buried in Babylon. Now, now just as Ezekiel was ordained and given a book to eat that was sweet and then bitter, now John is ordained as a prophet in the same style as, as Ezekiel to be the prophet of the final days of Jerusalem. Both men are given a book to eat in order that they can roar out the contents of the book, just like Jesus did. You got to get it in you. You got to eat it. The book is sweet on their tongues and it goes down bitterly. There is both sweetness and bitterness in the word of God. The gospel has both positive and negative aspects and positive and negative results. Salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. As John preaches out this word, some will believe and some will rejoice and some will have new life. Many will not. And the ancient city so full of history and tradition and evidences of the mercies of God, the ancient city of Jerusalem is all going to come down. And as necessary as that is because of the fact that that city has become a source of terror and not blessing, that city's coming down, it's still absolutely gut-wrenching 
to see the temple turned into a smoking pile of rubble. That's not a, that's not a happy thing. It's, it's not a happy thing to see your countrymen killed and enslaved, to see widows and orphans. It's heartbreaking. Even the faithful will weep at this. They're not going to dance and, and rejoice at the downfall of this city. The prophets are typically both relieved and grieved by the sweetness and the bitterness of the message. The day of the Lord brings immeasurable blessing and unspeakable woe. They rejoice in the works of Almighty God, but they grieve over the effects of sin and the lack of faithfulness and the idolatry of the covenant people. And so when we, when you and I witness God releasing men and institutions and nations to be overrun by their idols, to be fully given to the things that they're pursuing, we do two things. We rejoice that God is acting in history and we grieve over the things that are lost. And it's, it's not inconsistent or hypocritical or contradictory to do both. Are you happy or sad today? Yes, yeah, I'm rejoicing and I'm also grieving. There, there are two things constantly that, that we hold together. There is sweetness and there is bitterness, and we fully appreciate and recognize both. Don't ignore one or the other. So Jesus stands over the sea and over the land. He roars out loud enough so that everyone can hear him. No one escapes. No one can claim ignorance. No one is outside the sound of his voice. The message of the gospel is going out, and it's going out in the language of the nations. It's going out in Greek. The law of God, the word of God, is no longer hidden in the most holy place in an ark, it is now broadcast, it is now published to the nations, and, and it is roared out to the ends of the earth. And then after he does that, Jesus deputizes John to do the same. He gives him a message that confronts nations and peoples and tongues and kings. But John does this only after he eats the book. He's got to consume it. Once he consumes the book, then he has something to say. You likely feel very agitated to some degree. I might even not say very, but to some degree you feel agitated about the state of the world. You don't like what's going on in the country or the, or the state. But unless you eat the book, unless you consume it, unless you devour it, you aren't going to be able to, you, you aren't going to be able to speak clearly or intelligently or in an articulate manner or effectively to the problems that we're facing. You aren't going to be able to roar with the Lion of Judah unless you eat the book. You can't trumpet with the angel of the Lord who stands over land and sea unless you eat the book. Because you and I see and we hear people all the time who get worked up, they get so agitated and all they have is buzzwords and chants and little phrases and slogans. They don't have any content. All they have is emotions. But you have the book and you can eat it, devour it, and then roar, and then speak it. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Don't wilt. Don't hold back. Not now, especially not now. Please eat the book and roar. Would you talk to confused people at work or in your community or in your family or at school? When you talk to these people, the temptation is always for you to back down to let them talk and not confront the ignorance. You just say, you nod and say, well, I'll be. Well, <laughs> <laughs> ah, you know, ain't that something? 
Um, Because you don't want to start any fights. And you don't want to be branded a bigot or a homophobe or a sexist or what other ugly names they want to call you. Because that's all they have is names. They don't have ideas. They have emotions. They don't have content. You have content. You have truth. They don't have light. You have light. And yet you are the intimidated one. And it makes you feel like you're the dummy and you're the crazy one and you're the one who doesn't have it all together. But they get to say whatever they want to say while you bite your tongue. Why? Eat the book and roar it. Trumpet it. I'm not calling you. I'm not encouraging you to be a bully or a know-it-all but to maybe consider not being so timid. That's all. You have a license to roar, be bold, be brave. You might say, well, I'm not a prophet. Well, you aren't. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit. And in those days, they shall prophesy. As saints of the new covenant, you are priests. You all have immediate access to the ear of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. You are a priest. You are a king. God has given you dominion over the land and over your house. And he's given dominion over the nations. You are a king. You are a priest. You are a king. You are a prophet. You are licensed to be a prophet, to speak and to address the issues and the problems you see around you. Eat the book and prophesy. And be encouraged for all the ways you're already roaring. When you provide your kids a Christian education, you're standing brave and you are roaring against the monolith of anti-Christian progressive indoctrination. When you worship with the saints on the Lord's Day, I mean, who would ever thought that would be so revolutionary? Whoever thought that that would be so countercultural? You know, go to church. When you do that, you are roaring against the powers who want you so desperately to stop. Why don't they want you to sing? Because they know what it does. Why don't they want you to gather in person? Because they know deep down what that does and what that means. When you feast and when you sing and you dance and rejoice, you are making a statement about who your God is and who you obey. You are rejecting the dominion of fear and you are refusing to be governed by anxiety and you are roaring. When you work faithfully with your own hands and eat your own bread in peace, you are roaring. You don't think you are, but you are. That is a profound statement about who your God is. People of God, keep it up. Don't grow weary, but grow in boldness. Exercise those muscles and grow more confident. Isaiah 58, God says to Isaiah, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Whatever the future holds for us, we don't need Christians who are more timid, more nuanced, more tiptoeing, more compromise with evil, more integration of pagan thought, more walking on eggshells so as not to offend atheists and leftists and Marxists, more worry about appearing respectable by polite society. Stop caring about what polite society cares about you. Stop caring about what they think about you. You're here to please God, not man. 
fear God more than man. It is time to roar with a security and an assurance that says, I don't care who hears, I don't care who likes it, I don't care who agrees, and I don't care what you threaten to do to me. When I open my mouth, this book is going to come out of it. All of it. I'm not embarrassed by a word of this book. All of it's coming out. It's all good. Some of it's sweet. Some of it's going to give you a bellyache. But all of it's true, and all of it's coming out. People of God, you have a license to roar, eat the book, and roar without any shame or any embarrassment. This was written to a first century church in the face of great calamity and upheaval and change. And images like this were incredibly, immensely encouraging to them. Likewise, in our day, this is exceedingly encouraging to me that we can see our calling and our duty has not changed since the first century. Eat the book and roar. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this book. We pray that we would get it down inside of us, that we would consume it, that we would devour it so that we would have something to say when the hour of our, of our time to give testimony, an hour for us to respond to why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do so that we have it. We've got it. It's there. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, give us strength to do this, get it down inside of us, and to be able to be bold and confident in that day to speak it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.